Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today I have another fantastic professor for you. Uh, this one is an expert in everything running. He is someone that uh, I studied the Bible, the running Bible, the law of running years and years ago. Um, Professor Tim Noakes is to guest from South Africa. Now, Professor Noakes has published over more than 750 scientific books and articles. He's been cited more than 21,000 times in scientific literature. He has, of course, been the author of The Law of Running, uh, now The Law of Nutrition. Um, he's rated as an A1 scientist by the National Research Foundation of South Africa, and he's won numerous awards over the years, an incredible runner, an incredible scientist, um, and a man of, of straight talking. He says it like it is, and he tells the truth. He's really um, a brave and courageous soul. So I do hope you enjoy this interview with Professor Noakes. Some of the stuff we get into is quite deep, and uh, this is his uh, personal take on things, my personal take on things. Uh, do your own research, understand uh, this is for information and educational purposes only, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Professor Noakes. He really is amazing. Uh, before we head over, just want to remind you about our epigenetics program. If you are wanting help with understanding your genetics and how to optimize those genes and make sure that you get the best out of your genes that you inherited from mum and dad, putting them in the right environment to get the best out of them, which we talk a little bit about in this uh, episode as well, then head over to lisatarmati.com and hit the work with us button and you'll see our peak epigenetic, gen, epigenetics program there. You'll also see our online run training system there. You'll also see uh, my speaking um, services, uh, my books, everything else is on the website at lisatarmati.com. And of course, you can listen to this great podcast on there as well. Right, over to the show now with Professor Tim Noakes. Well, hi everyone and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today I have one of my long-time heroes, uh, role models, just an amazing professor that I am just so stoked to be interviewing today. So Professor Tim Noakes, welcome to the show. It's absolutely fantastic to have you here. I'm such an admirer. I'm fangirling a little bit, but um, you know, your book, uh, <laughs> The Law of Running, which is just one of many books that you've written and it's uh, basically the Bible of running. Um, and I've read that many times when I was a younger athlete and um, you know you're just an incredible person with an incredible knowledge and experience so it's fantastic to have you here today so thanks for being thanks, here. Lisa. lovely to chat to you I look forward to the next hour or so it's going to be really exciting thank it you is, for having me it is going to be really exciting um, so Professor Noakes for, for those who don't know your incredible history in which you know I don't know what rock people might have been living under but can you just give them a little bit of a synopsis of your your career your incredible career Yeah Lisa I was very fortunate that I went into medical school in 1969 and it was really the start of the exercise sciences before that the sports sciences weren't very strongly sports science related it was still the, the old stuff and the new ideas hadn't come in yet and so I started at the ground level, and within a year of doing starting medical school, I decided I preferred sports science than sports medicine. So I went through my career as a doctor, trained as a doctor, only interested in sports medicine. Everything I interpreted according to sports medicine. I then went out into research for five or six years that got my PhD in medicine. And then I started sports science and sports medicine in South Africa and then started doing research. 
And during that time, you refer to law of running. I, I, I was started writing regularly because a friend of mine said, you know, you should write for the public. And I realized that to be successful, I needed this public on my side. So I'd started writing. And in 1981, I'd finished enough. I thought I've got a book here, you see. So then I sat down and I said, actually, I don't have a book. And then in 1985, I published The Law of Running, the first edition, and then it's been revised four times, and I'm just about to start the fifth revision. Wow. Of that <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. So, um, so I became very well known as the sort of guru on running. Mm. And I ran many marathons and ultramarathons during that time. The only problem was I was giving the wrong dietary advice. I was telling athletes that they must eat lots of carbohydrates and uh, that's great if you're healthy, but if you're unhealthy like I became, I became insulin resistant, developed type 2 diabetes. It's the wrong advice. So fortunately, 11 years ago, I saw the light and I realized that my health was deteriorating. I changed my diet and then I became persona non grata in South African medicine. And my university canceled me. They actively acted to get rid of me. I lost all my funding, mm -hmm. and uh, which was amazing because I was telling the truth, which I wow. still do. I just tell the truth. Yeah. And then the Health Professions Council took action against me for being unprofessional, for promoting the start. And we went to court for four years, uh, 28 days in court. I gave evidence for nine days, cross-examined for, for three of those days. And uh, eventually we won 13 nil. We wow. completely flattened the, the authorities. And the reason was we used the science and they didn't bother about science. It's what I learned then is that the authorities have no interest whatsoever in science. They try to block you and cancel mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. on the basis that we don't like you because you're saying yes. the wrong stuff. But, and they have no interest in the science. Yep. That's the science never gets out. It's just propaganda that is popular that so so we we presented seven thousand pages of do, of documented science they oh, presented shit. 10 pages one paper <laughs> which we then proved was probably fraudulent so, and this was about the low carb high fat that you'd changed from telling athletes to eat lots of carbs you know i remember all the pasta parties that i went to prior to marathons <laughs> marathons everyone was into their pasta and and we've all evolved over the time to realize hang on a minute this isn't uh, this isn't working like it should be and it works yeah. for, for when you're young and you you know um, but it, 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 and we all sort of developed in this time and changed our point of view and the science has developed. And so you actually went, because your history was interesting. Um, you, you, you have a family history of type 2 diabetes and you were heading down that same track and that's actually what woke you up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. My dad died 10 years after the diagnosis and I've been well over 10 years with my diagnosis and I'm doing wow. pretty well. And you don't die of diabetes, you die of its management or its mismanagement. And that's what happened to my father. And sadly, I was part of that mismanagement because I didn't understand. I just thought mm. carbs are good for you. And so if you're diabetic, you need carbs, and that's the last thing you need. So so part of my goal in the next, as a, the number of years I've got left, is to just keep driving the story that, that diabetes is a disease of choice. It's a behavior choice. And it's very difficult to get that message out in medicine because medicine doesn't want that. They don't want choices. They, you just take pills and that's it. Yeah, and yeah, that and is, that's the wrong advice. And was it also because, like, you went uh, when you changed from the high carb, you know, the cereals and the oatmeals and the bread and the pastas and the things, and uh, were you going against 
the food industry? What was that the reason behind why they attacked you so hard out? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the funny thing is that uh, that my main funding then came from a medical insurance company in South Africa, and I was the the poster boy for their high carbohydrate grain based diet. <laughs> and so the well, moment I came, I read an article in one of their magazines, which they've been they stupidly published. And I said, against the grains, that was the title. And I mean, I didn't know. I'd only been doing it for five months and I just knew it was helping me. And I immediately lost all the funding there. Wow. But, but, but it was much worse than that. I'm sure you've also know that I wrote the book Waterlog, which is about yep. overdrinking and yes, the problems Yes, I want to talk there. about that, yeah. And that's where I really upset the sports drink industry, particularly Pepsi-Cola, because that's their product. And I'm aware that they wanted to (laughs) shut me up. But ultimately, when the trial came along, the the main opponents to me, the prosecution witnesses, had connections to an organization called the International Life Sciences Institute. And that is a front for the food industry. So the food industry was indirectly involved in my trial. In fact, more than indirectly. They they control the dietary guidelines in New Zealand and Australia and in South Africa, completely mm-hmm. control them. Mm-hmm. And they control it through the people, the, the professors who run the major departments of nutrition. And the person who was the chief prosecution witness was the head of nutrition at one of the universities. And she's been an ILSI fan and president for, for decades. And that's so uh, that was it was very clear that that was the linkage. Yeah. And, and, and she, is, sorry, I never realized that, that she had no basis in science. And, and we exposed her in the trial terribly. She, she was just completely ignorant. <laughs> but you must have gone through hell, you know, like as a professor, someone who spent years dedicated to their profession and the, the pursuit of good science to be discredited in this way or, or taken to court and, and, and to put through the ringer, basically, um, for telling the truth. And, you know, we now, you know, like now in 2021, the low-carb, high-fat diet has a lot more adoption, still not in mainstream, still not far part of the food pyramid, for God's sake, which is if anybody follows that, they're in trouble. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, this whole, it is shifting slowly, isn't it? It's a bit like the electric car revolution. I think they would have had electric cars decades ago, but it was stopped by the auto industry. You know, they always want to stop what's going to cut off their money supply. And we have to understand that that is a driver of this, you know, the way things are run, you know, like, and, and I've seen this in my own life um, with my mum. Everybody knows my podcast, knows my story with my mum. She had an aneurysm six years ago, was left with massive brain damage, and uh, we were told she would never do anything again and never have any quality of life and, you know, um, put a do not resuscitate order on her and all of that sort of carry on. And I, you know, absolutely as an athlete, as an ultramarathon athlete, I know that people have always told me you can't do that. It's impossible to run the distances that I did run. So I've never listened to the people that tell me I can't. And so I spent the next, well, it's now six years later, dedicated to finding answers from people that could help me. And the ketone, you know, ketosis and ketone diets was a big part of it, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, intravenous vitamin C, a whole lot of things were a part of that therapy back and you know to cut a long story short my mum was you know 
came back to full health and full power of attorney and full driver's license, like a miracle, like coming from a baby state, you know, like being a baby to being a fully functioning woman. And this happened when she was 74 years old, not a, not, you know, a young person. Um, And so I know that, you know, hyperbaric, for example, which is a powerful therapy will never ever see the light of day really because there's no money behind it you know there's no there's no big driving force to do the clinical research and when you understand to see this in a personal experience you start to understand some of the things that are at play so how did you deal with that how did you deal with the psychological pressure of being put through such a a long arduous i mean you know they must want you to you know, just jump off a cliff, really, don't they? You're absolutely right. They, they want you to commit suicide. That's mm. the whole focus. And it's called academic mobbing. Yeah. And eventually some people do quit and they do commit suicide. And that was always a risk, but these people don't consider it because they're basically psychopathic. They have no interest in anyone who did what did to, done to, oh, what happened to me was done by professors of medicine. Wow. And deans of medicine. And not, and it was just not one university. It was about four or five in South Africa. Wow! And that's the tragedy. It's the psychopaths get to the top, and they only get to the top because they're psychopathic, and they have no concern for you or the patients or anything, and they just yeah. pretend. Yep. And I think that's the reason why I actually got out of medicine. I got out of medicine after one year internship, and then I went into research and I th- in science because I thought that's much more. I'm better yeah. equipped for doing doing that. But it was partly because of this toxic environment that you're in. And I, it's got more toxic, much yeah, more toxic. Way toxic at the moment. Yeah. How is it that, you know, like, why is this this academic? It seems to be really, really brutal. I mean, you know, people from the outside who aren't in academia would think that doctors and scientists are the most civilised people because they're the most educated and well-educated people. And, you know, surely they're all very civilised and above reproach. We have this. We have this image of doctors and uh, of people who are in the medical profession as being saints, and unfortunately, there are some brilliant. I mean, there are some brilliant doctors. Don't get me wrong. There's some lovely, compassionate, amazing human beings and amazing, you know, surgeons and and so on and so forth. But it's not true for the entire no. <laughs> academic or medical professions. There are people who have ulterior motives and they're mining their own nests and things like that. Um, yeah, the, the the profession is brutal. The training is brutal. You know, I mean, we used to work 110 hours a week, and yeah. you didn't sleep at night, and you had wow. to treat patients, and it, that's brutal. And then it doesn't get any easier. So by the time you're in the mid 30s, you've got huge debts, and and it, it's very difficult to get out of those debts. Mm. You just have mm. to work harder and harder, and I think it destroys your family life where it can. Mm. So. It's wow. a very, very difficult profession, and uh, I feel I feel compassion for the doctors who are stuck in it because yeah. it, they're really struggling. Yeah, and, and and it is putting everything on the line sometimes for their for their beliefs. Let's dive into a little bit to the, uh, the what what is a good diet, because you know we have vegetarians, we have vegans, we have people on ketosis, we have people who are carnivores, we have all sorts of people, and they all have very very strong opinions. And they will have some good points and some negative points. What is for you a healthy human diet? And does such a thing exist or does it depend on your genetics and, and your background? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some general guidelines that we can follow to be healthy? Yeah, I think uh, the general rule is you must eat the evolutionary diet, the diet that humans adapted for. Mm-hmm. 
And I was very fortunate. We're putting together a textbook on low carbs for the Noakes Foundation. And I wrote a chapter, not that I was a premier author, with Ben Bendori, Mick Bendori, who's a genius from, from Jerusalem, from mm-hmm. Israel, who's, who's done some amazing studies of what is the original diet. And he showed that, that humans hunted the fattest animals they could find. That was the goal. It was biggest, fattest animals. <laughs> and once those fat animals disappeared, then we were in real trouble. And then we had to adopt agriculture. And that then became the problem. But if you read the books, as you will have, like Western Price, it's very clear that the, the traditional populations, like the Maori in New Zealand and in Australia, the Aborigines, they were unbelievably healthy. They were amongst mm. the healthiest, most attractive, most powerful humans on earth, on the planet. They were unbelievable. They had none of the diseases, and particularly no cancer. And that's no one cancer. of the other articles wow. I wrote. There was no cancer amongst those wow. populations. Wow. So cancer is purely a nutritional disease. Now, I never heard that at medical school, and you still will never hear it at medical schools. <laughs> so, so the answer is we've got to go back to eat what the Maoris were eating or the, New Ze- or the Australian Aborigines. That's what they were eating, fish and, and other foods from the, from the land. Those are the foods that really keep you healthy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would conclude that animal produce is, is essential. Now, there are vegetarians and vegans who, who, who live reasonably healthily, but it's a difficult and it's probably quite an expensive diet. And the problem with vegetarian diets, it also allows you to eat sugar, mm-hmm. and that's a killer. So, and, and these highly refined foods are the disaster. So the simple advice is you need to eat real foods that are not processed. And mainly from an animal-based origin. And that, that's what I would say. And, of course, that will make vegans and vegetarians very angry, but, but that's the way it is. If they choose to eat that, that's fine. But generally, that is more sort of a religious, spiritual belief, and that's fantastic. It's, mm. And they may get benefit from the spiritual beliefs that they have. But on talking simple biology, it's very clear animal-based foods are the best for you. Brilliant. Oh, and this is the thing, you know, like if we can separate the ethical argument, you know, from the actual what what do we evolve to eat and how is our digestive tract different? For example, I, I heard you speak on one podcast about I think it was the gorillas and how they turn their the the the, the vegetables or the 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 plant based stuff differently than our digestive systems work. Um, so how have we evolved from a digestive, you know, point of view and, and um, why is it good for us to have a, a, a relatively high fat diet and some meats in there and not too much carbs? I mean, we all understand, I think anybody who's a little bit aware is aware that we're eating far too much sugar and far too many carbs um, as a general rule. Um, why are we so addicted to those and why do we chase them so hard? You know, like you, you, you eat a piece of chocolate and you, the whole thing's gone, you know, like you, we're, it is a very addictive, you know, I've struggled with that one, you know, <laughs> I know what it's like. Um, yeah, so, so, so from an evolutionary perspective and our digestion and, and from that perspective, you know, what's going on there and how, how do we evolve? Well, if you go back far enough, like three or four million years, it's very clear that, that it was animal produce that made us human and we weren't eating high-carbohydrate diets. It's true if you look at some hunter-gatherer populations today, they do eat quite a lot of carbohydrates, but that's only because there's no animals available. They had to evolve to adapt to that and they probably evolved appropriately. 
But for many of us, and I come from the north of England, that's where my parents come from, and they, that was an, it was covered with ice for the last 10,000 years. And <laughs> yeah. so they weren't growing meadies and grains and things, and they weren't eating strawberries. They were eating sheep and lamb and those sorts of things. They were eating animal-based, high-fat diets. And so, so for myself, it's very difficult to adapt within a few thousand years to a high-grain diet. Mm. I think that so the grains have come, as you know, 18,000 years, 12 to 18,000 years ago. And the populations in the Middle East that eat high carbohydrate diets are probably quite well adapted because mm-hmm. they've had 18,000 years. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of us, we haven't. We're very much closer to animal based foods. So that's now you ask, what's the difference? Well, if you take a gorilla, they've got this huge appendulous abdomen, and people think, oh, they're fat. No, no, that's not, that's the large bowel. They've got this huge colon mm-hmm. because the food that they're eating, they can't digest it. They have to have bacteria in the gut, which then break it down, and they break the cellulose, which is a carbohydrate, into saturated fat. Wow. So that's the key. That, they're eating a high saturated fat diet, and they're not fat. It's because they've got this huge gut. And when humans evolved to become, become hunters, we could get rid of that huge gut because we didn't need it. We were getting the saturated fat directly from the animals. So we didn't need to produce the saturated fat ourselves. And so immediately we could reduce the length of our gut and particularly the large bowel is much shorter. So we've still got quite a large small bowel, which is where we digest animal foods, but we've got a very small large bowel. And so that, that's how we've evolved. And, and it's very clear we're designed to eat animal produce, which is digested in the small bowel. And that's how we've evolved. And that allowed us to get on hips to narrow that allowed us to start running because our knees came closer together we could run more effectively and then we became better hunters and that then helped us evolve further uh, i was involved uh, years ago when i was uh, you know doing my ultra marathons we we tried to get a a worldwide series off the ground called run the planet and it was looking at uh tribal groups all around the world that did super long distance running and uh, we actually ended up doing the pilot. We did a, re-encan- a reenactment, sorry, of a of an Aboriginal man who'd run 250 kilometres, and it was documented across the uh, Australian outback uh, near Alice Springs. And, and we did that that show. We, we we didn't end up getting the funding for the entire series, unfortunately, because it would have been fascinating. We had plans to, you know, go and visit all the hunter gatherer places around the world that had done that sort of persistence hunting, and um, it was a fascinating. But I truly believe that that humans, you know, used to run or walk, not just running, but longer distances every day. It was a part of who we are, and so I was always, you know, promoting um, running and so on as a as a as a good sport. I've tempered that a little bit now that I understand more about my own genetics and I've studied genetics and epigenetics. It's um, part of what I do. Um, And I understand now that actually my ultra marathon was actually against working against my own genetics. Um, I'm more suited to shorter, sharper, high-intensity sort of workouts that are of shorter duration. I have a very um, easily inflamed uh, cardiovascular system and I can overwhelm with oxidative stress very very quickly. Um, didn't understand any of the, all of that when I was doing ultramarathons, but now I do. But I do still believe that humans need to be moving, you know, every day, all day, and that we're, we're very much meant to be physical physical beings. What is your take on all of that? Is ultramarathoning, you know, because a lot of people listen to this are ultramarathoners or marathoners. Um, what is your take on is it 
is it a good thing to be doing long distance running or long distance endurance based athletics? Is, is that still your belief? You know, after having done many, many yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Lisa. It's very difficult as the author of Law of Running to because <laughs> there in the book it says you know you can't run enough. You must run more and more and more, and you'll never get arthritis and so on. Well, now that I'm in my seventies and I I look around at the guys that who've been running into their 70s, it's clear that it's not, a, it's not a sustainable activity. That's very clear. And if you've been running all your life, by the age of 70, it'll be very, very few who are still able to run as they once did. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you look at the, all the Olympic marathon runners who I describe in the book as being my heroes, yeah. they're not in such great shape now. And it's, wow. it's not maybe their cardiovascular health, but their orthopedic problems that they have. So I, that's, and, and one of my great friends who is well written about in the book, he's really struggling with bilateral knee arthritis and, and he's about six years younger than me. So, so I, don't, I agree with you that from an orthopedic standpoint, it's not ideal. And, and it's not suggest- something you want to do for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I would suggest also that from a hormonal perspective and, yeah. and and certainly genetics comes into this. Some people are more suited. I mean, obviously the Kenyans and the Ethiopians are, are, are made to run, you know, longer distances than probably the Maori are. Um, yeah. And there's a genetic component. But, you know, like when I was doing ultramarathons, and I've, I've said this a number of times too on the podcast, at one point I did a run right through New Zealand where I ran 2,250 kilometres in 42 days, so 52 marathons in 42 days. Um, um, and I put on weight. I got fatter. Yeah. And I was burning yeah. in excess of 10, 12,000 calories a day. And I was nowhere eating anywhere near that. Um, yeah. But I got fatter. I got inflammation. I got hormone problems, infertility, you know, you know over that yeah. uh, course of that time. Um, so I had to rethink. <laughs> and when I, when I did my own genetics and understood and studied genetics, and I actually stopped doing ultras and I did start yeah. doing shorter high-intensity workouts, and most of my workouts are now done and dusted within an hour, and I do a lot mm. of strength work um, and yoga and things like that to balance things out. I feel a ton healthier, like just, you know, day and night healthier. I can manage my weight much better. I was fatter when I was running the distances. Did you find weight control more difficult when you're doing a longer distance running? Well, uh, in my case, it was definitely the carbohydrates. That was, <laughs> well, that was the problem. As soon too. as I removed them. Uh, I got thin again, but I, I'm absolutely doing what you're doing. I joined CrossFit three years ago, and it's been <laughs> magic for me. Wow! Uh, it's been really, really astonishing, and it's interesting how I got there. I was invited by the person who started CrossFit, Greg Glassman. Wow! Because he read Waterlogged, and it's interesting. CrossFit was also targeted by the same people who were targeting me. Targeted CrossFit because it was a threat to them for various oh, reasons. And there was a paper published in which it was clearly fraudulent. And he knew it was fraudulent because he read it. And he said, but these things don't happen in CrossFit. And he challenged, he took the authors to court plus the journal. And he also included all the people who supposedly were injured in the trial. They've got, say, 20 people. He said, wow. I want to see all 20 of those people in court. If they wow. were injured, I want them to in front of the judge to say they were injured. And eventually they realized it was completely fraudulent. They'd made up these injuries. Wow. And so he won the case. And it's still ongoing because he's got the losses because he they lost a contract with the U.S. military as a result of that paper. Wow. So that has That's got to be insane. sorted out. 
So anyway, he said, you, you're the only person I know who also took on industry in Waterlogged. And so he got, in, he got interested. I got to talk to, to the CrossFit people. And then eventually I decided I better go and try CrossFit. So I went <laughs> to one session. Where I did the, I mean, I couldn't even do press up proper press ups. I had to do press ups against the wall after, but I couldn't walk for a week. So I said, <laughs> Don't go too hard. You can't said, go too hard. <laughs> I said, but I'd almost done nothing, you see. So, so I said, well, I'm more stiff than when I ran the Comrades Marathon of yeah. 19 kilometers. And I said, there's yeah. something here. And I've just, uh, I've loved it every minute of it. And exactly like you, we do, I do an hour, two, twice a week, and it's, it's, 40 minutes really hard, but really, really hard. <laughs> and then I can compl- complement that with some running, but that's what I need. And, yep. and I've bulked up. I've put on five kilograms of muscle at the age of 72. Wow, which is that's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm lifting weights that I could never even considered when I was younger. Gosh, you actually, yeah, so, this is the other thing. Running is very catabolic. And, uh, you know, yeah, when you're 20, that's fine. You know, you can yeah. keep your muscle. But when you're over 40... You know, like I've got some serious good guns now because I do yeah, exactly. do that weights, you know, and that's very important to me to maintain my muscle mass and that helps yeah. me manage my weight and all the, the other stuff that I would otherwise, you and, know. And the other thing that you'll have is much you have flexibility. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. which, which at 72, you'll see everyone's fixed. Yeah. They can't move. And I've got these back muscles, which are astonishing. And so they wow. protect my spine. Yep. Oh, yeah. and back issues. I had like um, four crushed discs, like nothing there. And when I was running, I was, you know, they, they would say, oh, you're going to have to have a, a spinal surgery and fuse everything and everything. My career was over, blah, blah, blah. I was having spasms 10 times a day. And then I started doing CrossFit and I worked my way up and I and I. And, and now I've been years without a single spasm. I do not have back pain and I have a, a very, very strong core. Um, and I work on that core and I maintain that because the back injury is still there, but I don't have any issues. Exactly. You know, exactly. <laughs> you learn this. And, and you know what I love about you is that you're not afraid to say, hey, what, what I was teaching 20 years ago isn't quite right because I've done a lot of science <laughs> since then and I've actually worked some stuff out and I've experimented on myself and I've, I've, I've changed. And I've definitely, I've changed my tune on, yeah. on yeah. you know, on many, many things. And that's the sign of someone who's humble enough to, I think, you know, realise that there's more out there to learn and we can never stop yeah. learning. Um, and it's really, really important that we do that. But running for, you know, the psychological and the the goals and the, the the tenacity and the mental toughness and the all of that sort of stuff. I'm still, you know, like that's yeah. it's it's made me who I am for sure. Absolutely. You know, and and if we hadn't been runners, we wouldn't be doing the gym now. No, that's the other thing. By the way, I must so I am rewriting law of running as I said, and you know the first <laughs> few chapters now are debunking all the myths. So <laughs> so the problem. <laughs> The problem in law of running was that it has so much science in it initially. And I thought, so the guys have advised me. They said, well, you know, you're going to have to rewrite it. But I said, but how can I leave stuff out? You know, it's so good. So I just said, okay, I'm starting completely anew. And the first thing is I'm debunking all the stories. But let me tell you, the last week I've been writing an article, well, in the last month, I've been writing an article on should you be eating carbohydrates or fats during exercise or before exercise? And, you know, I, I've discovered another thing, which, which of course, I never understood. The, the only reason you need carbohydrates is to keep your blood glucose normal. That is the sole reason. 
you do not need it for muscle glycogen use and so on. And I've been through all the historical studies, and they all show that if you take a group and exercise them, let's say for three hours or two hours, of course their muscle glycogen drops. But the only way you can get performance to be enhanced is to prevent the blood glucose falling. So at every time, at exhaustion, they may have low glycogen, but they also have low blood glucose. And the blood glucose acts in the brain to prevent you exercising more because it's obvious. You've got to regulate your glucose because there's so little. There's only five grams in the bloodstream. And you can be burning three or four grams a minute. Wow. Now, you must have an incredible control to prevent that happening. And the only way you can do it is to make sure you don't allow the muscles to do too much work and to, to deplete your blood glucose levels. And, and it's so obvious. So this whole debate about what you should eat in marathon running is simple. Just don't become hypoglycemic. Whatever you do, if you need carbs to do that, that's fine. If you need to do high-fat diet to do it, that's fine. But just don't allow don't your blood sure. glucose to fall. That's so it. What's your and, take on then ketosis, like being in ketosis and being a yeah. fat-adapted athlete? You know, I had Professor Grant Schofield on the podcast recently, and he's a he's another top man that um you know wrote, wrote what the fat and and, and some other books and uh, yeah his his uh, run into trouble as well <laughs> not as much as you I don't think but yeah. <laughs> um and uh, he he has athletes like top level athletes where he said he has adapted them over over a period of weeks obviously to get into ketosis and to get them stable and stuff but then their performance goes up and you know now I like look back at my career where you know doing things like running Death Valley or, or, or things like that and think gosh if I had been fat adapted what difference would that have made to my performance because you know <laughs> you, hit, you hit the wall like 10 times and something like that exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's really and that's hard. the whole point now that's the whole point the whole point is that you mustn't prevent you mustn't allow your blood glucose to fall and ketosis does that brilliantly because it also provides a different fuel the ketones now, it's, I mean, it's amazing. I've just this very minute been working working on a paper, uh, reading a paper. Yeah, this is an amazing paper, which is, you know, this is published in 2003. Association between fatigue and failure to preserve cerebral energy turnover during prolonged exercise. Mm-hmm. These guys knew it. So they studied people, they, they studied their brain metabolism at exhaustion. Now, who would do that? I mean, <laughs> they've got to have a cannula in this, this vein up here wow. and in the artery, and then they can measure what's being used by the brain. And they show once your blood glucose falls, your brain just stops working properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's, but, but sorry, my point was the, the ketones that you try, the brain tries to use the ketones, but it's not adapted, so it doesn't work. If you are keto adapted over months, I'm sure under the same circumstances, your glucose drops, the brain just says, no, that's fine, I'll burn. I'll burn the ketones. So I think that the benefit of ketosis is it prevents hypoglycemia. As you said, the bonks, you can't yeah. get them anymore. Yeah. And so you don't need as much glucose or even if you need any glucose. I wonder so if that, you have the, I wonder if you have like the exogenous ketones, like I'm taking exogenous yeah. ketones now and, um, and I'm not in a full keto diet um, yeah. at all, but um, that alone is helping me be more metabolically flexible, right? Yeah. It's teaching my body to use carbs sometimes and then ketones other times and teaching my body to do that. 
Um, and I had Professor Dom D'Agostino uh, on the show, who's a keto um, yeah. whiz kid, you know, just amazing, um, sharing all his knowledge around that. Um, just on the on the ketones too, um, for brains and for cancer, <laughs> um, I, um, unfortunately, my mum, who I just mentioned before, you know, came back from the aneurysm, has now got lymphoma and uh, had a brain tumour and we've had the brain tumour removed. We're now fighting cancer. The first thing I went to was diet. Um, the first thing that I, you know, I already had her on a relatively good diet, but from the point that I knew that she had uh, a tumour, we went, um, well, for starters, I just did vegetables while I cleaned out and worked out what pathways were at play and what way to do it. Um, and now she's on a ketone diet. She's on, you know, exogenous ketones plus um, a small amount of fish and meat and and vegetables, basically greens. Um, and she's, you know, like, I mean, touch wood, she's doing very well. And the doctors, I went to the hematologist yesterday and he said, looking at you on paper, I would have thought I would be, you know, seeing someone who's like, you know, n- near the end. <laughs> and you look, you know, she looks all perky and happy and um, amazing. Um, and I think, you know, that's one part of my strategy is the metabolic approach to cancer because cancer loves sugar. Cancer loves yeah. also glutamine sometimes, depending on your types of cancer. And I've been, you know, studying hard all the, the metabolic pathways. What's your take on, on you know, this low-carb, high-fat for um, preventing cancer? Oh, I have no question it prevents. I think the because, as we've said, it was when we change the diet that cancer becomes a become prevalent and the the underlying factor for 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 cancer is glucose insulin resistance that's clearly insulin resistance underlies most of the cancers so it's a lifetime of a high carbohydrate diet and people who are insulin resistant and i'd put fructose right up front there as well as a big factor in cancer and fructose as we think is healthy we think fruit and you know I think a little bit of fruit when you're eating the whole fruit and not juicing or anything like that. Um, and if you're an active person, you can probably get away with, you know, a few strawberries and a few blueberries and things like that. Um, but it's a very dangerous area, isn't it, fructose? Because people believe that, you know, I used to think that grapes were a great healthy food, but I'd eat a kilo at a time. Yeah. <laughs> And then wonder why I've got problems with my weight. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't understand. It's a fruit, isn't it? It's healthy. No, no. <laughs> you know, like fruits are a very, very problematic one. Um, so yeah, cancer for for preventing cancer. I mean, there's all, there's other aspects, of course, toxins and viruses and, and things that can add to yeah. the into the mix as well. Um, and you know, it's, it's certainly not a simple thing. Just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, Patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.com 
www.lisatamati.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot lisatamati.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month New Zealand or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So we, we are grateful if you do. There are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatamati.com and thanks very much for joining us. Um, we've we've talked about a little bit about running and your your passion for running and your knowledge i mean your book law of running is was my bible we um in there you talk about the central governor is that one part of that you're rewriting or not because i i really caught on to that that thing because when i was doing ultra marathons my brain would like it would prohibit me from using my muscles and i'd be like this little robot that i couldn't get my muscles to work you know when i reached a certain point is that still part of your theory that that uh, no, you central know, governor you know what's so interesting is that uh, the, the, i came across the central governor in about 19, 1996 97 that's when i first started describing it and and i realized this is the truth and so I included it in Law of Running, knowing that, because I wanted to put a stake in the ground saying, okay, this is the theory, and you got it from me. But that caused me huge problems. So, you really? Know, the book was, it was reviewed by one of the leading exercise physiologists in the world. And he just said, this is bunkum. This whole central governor theory is nonsense. Wow. And uh, it was so funny because he, he, the book was up for an award, and he almost kiboshed that that award wow but he had he didn't like me and uh, and he was one of those guys who can't change his mind so the central governor will be central because it is absolutely true and oh good i'm glad yeah. yes, i believe that so i've been thought, preaching that for 20 years so, yeah. <laughs> so then, go, oh, as okay. part of the mythology the the dogmas that i throw out is the old the reductionist idea that you can reduce exercise performance to lactate and glycogen and I mean, it's it's unbelievably stupid that, that conclusion. But and the reason the reason it's taught is because exercise physiologists have to be able to sell something, and what they can sell is we can test your oxygen use. So then come to the laboratory, and we'll tell you whether you've got lots of oxygen. You can use VO2 lots of oxygen max. or not. Yeah, that's yeah. VO two max, and that'll tell us whether you're a good athlete or not. Well, I can tell you whether you're a good athlete or not just by telling me what your times are at different distances. I don't, you don't need to come to the laboratory. And then the other thing is that the, we've got to measure your glycogen in the muscle because that'll tell us whether you've got enough carbohydrates stored. And that's also, as I said, nonsensical because the only glucose fuel store that's important in the body is the three, is the five grams, the five blood. grams that's in the bloodstream. That's wow. all that's important. The rest wow. unimportant. Yeah, yes. and so, so all you have to do is take enough carbs to make sure that you keep those five grams in the bloodstream. And the central so, governor, the, the whole principle, like, you know, like when you reach a certain, and I like adopted, you know, when you're doing super long ultra marathons and that walking as part of my strategy to push out the time till that my body would start to just shut down. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and it takes massive mental strength to overwhelm so your your that that so it's like a survival instinct almost day eh? that your body is going sit the 
frick down, you know, we've got to stop moving. And you're like, no, no, I'm going to move anyway. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's this war going on up there. Um, and and that that sort of resonated me with me because that's very true. I've, I've felt it a hundred times on my body, you know, or more. Um, yeah. And seeing this in action, like, like, and it's a very much a mental thing. Like you actually just want to stop, you know, <laughs> and yeah. you're having to overcome that. And it's very much. A- uh, can I just? I'll come back to that. But I, 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 I was going to tell you a story, which, which I should have. Yeah. About the car. Go for so, it. so one of my great friends is Bruce Fordyce, and and we convinced him. Sorry, no, he convinced us that carbohydrates were essential for <laughs> ultra marathon running, and we developed a product together with him, and it's called FRN Leppin and so on. If is his name and N is my name. And anyway, he converted to the low carbs about eight years ago. And then he went and ran the New York City Marathon under three hours at the age 56. Wow. And he's running completely reversed. And he said, Tim, if I'd eaten this high fat diet, I would have run 20 minutes faster in the Comrades Marathon. And he <laughs> held the record that lasted for 20 years. But wow. that, he's not the only one. Dave Scott, who is the one of the greatest ultra man athletes of all time, Ironman athletes of all time, who really started the move towards ultra-distance events. It was his running and competing in the Ironman that stimulated the world's interest in the Ironman. Anyway, he, he wrote to me about four years ago and says, Tim, you know, I've just read your book and I changed my diet. And he said, I wish I'd been eating this diet all my life. And so I asked him, what would have happened? He said, I would have been an hour faster in the Ironman. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And this it does make you wonder, eh? Now, when you're older, yeah. and you think, "Oh gosh, if I just if I just known that and just done that, what what could I've achieved?" You know, would have been fantastic. And, and he also said that I will not allow any of my athletes. He trains a lot of athletes. I will not allow any of them to eat a high carbohydrate diet because he says you can't survive on it. You can do it for four or five years at the top level where you're training six hours a day. But soon enough, it catches up with you. Yeah, 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 yeah I'd agree. And uh, your, board, your book, Waterlogged, I mean, um, hyponatremia is, is, is a thing that uh, most people believe they have to drink tons all the time. And this is uh, when, you, when you're doing, you know, uh, you know long-distance racing. Um, w- what's wrong with that theory? And what's hyponatremia for those who don't know? I've had it many times. <laughs> yeah, so hyponatremia is a, a drop in your blood glucose, uh, sorry, your blood sodium levels. They're normally, like glucose, sodium is tightly regulated. It's homeostatically regulated. So you have all these feedback systems and feed-forward systems. So the brain's involved in telling you how much to drink, and then it controls the hormone release, which determine how much sodium you lose in your urine and in your sweat. So you have to, and then it'll tell you to take in more sodium if you're sodium deficient. So that these mechanisms evolved over millions of years. And they, they're unbelievable. We could never construct a, an animal with those, con, with those controls. They, they're too refined. So, and when, when we come to the glucose story, the key in glucose is you might, don't want to use the muscles to use too much. So you have to slow down when your blood glucose falls. What happens in hyponatremia is it happens a bit late. You start to slow down too late, and it doesn't tell you to stop drinking. That, that's part of the problem. So what happens? Overdrink, and your blood sodium levels fall, 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 fall. Eventually, your brain swells because the water can't exist in the bloodstream anymore. It's got to go out into the cells. 
your brain swells. Because you've got a rigid skull, the brain can only swell a certain amount before the pressure rises. And once the pressure rises, the blood flow into the brain is reduced. And when that happens, you you'll stop breathing. And so you die from stopping breathing. Wow. So we identified the problem in 1981. We described what was the cause by 1991. We absolutely determined flawless research showed that it's because these people drank too much during too much. these exercises. And we were able to confirm that they have a genetic defect as well, that they oversecrete a hormone that prevents them from losing the, sodium, the water. So that again comes back form? to the point. You won't yeah. get hyponatremia if your system is homeostatically working properly. Uh-huh. You'll just pass the urine out. And you'll stop drinking. Your body will realize, I don't need to drink all this water. In these people, for some reason, that homeostatic mechanism is damaged because they're over-secreting this hormone, which they shouldn't be. So they over-secrete the antidiuretic hormone. Yeah. So they don't pass urine. So they're drinking at great length while they're running the marathon. And they're not passing urine. And then they've heard from Gatorade said, you must drink 1.2 liters or 40 ounces of fluid every hour. So what happened, and we pred- I predicted that the first death would be in a female marathon runner in America, and it's exactly as it happened. Why female? Because they're smaller, and they follow instructions. But they may also be more likely to have this condition where they over-secrete this hormone, antidiuretic hormone. And so predictably, that's what happened. So we had a number of deaths. Unfortunately, in South Africa, we would have had an epidemic in the Comrades Marathon. If we had followed those guidelines, Mm -hmm. drink 1.2 liters per hour for 10 or 11 hours, we would have literally had had thousands of people and hundreds dying from this condition. But fortunately, we were able to stop that and the authorities listened. They reluctantly, I might add. And we we tell them, listen, you don't need seconding stations every mile in a race for 90 kilometers for 56 miles. You don't need it. But they managed, they still kept them, but they managed to say, listen, you don't need to drink at each of them, each station. And you should only drink to thirst. So again, it's the same old story. We evolved, we've got the mechanisms. You don't need to be told when to drink. Your body will tell you when to drink. Yeah, exactly. And so you just drink to thirst. And that's absolutely what is the case. You drink to thirst. And you'll be fine. If you drink ahead of those, you're at risk of developing this condition. What about the argument that you, by the time you're thirsty, it's too late and you're actually dehydrated? Because dehydration is a problem too, you know, like for, for, for some runners. Or can you, like, if you're taking your sodiums and your electrolyte tablets or your electrolyte um, drinks, are you balancing it out then? Yeah, you don't need to. Your body will do it for you. So if you just take water, you'll retain sodium. And we always have a sodium excess. It's impossible. It's essentially impossible to get sodium deficit. So each day, wow. we each of us eat more salt than we need. Mm-hmm. So the next day, the next 25 hours, we've got to get rid of it. So when you start your marathon, your body's saying, actually, I've got too much salt on board from yesterday. I'm trying to get rid of it. And they'll say, oh, thank goodness. You're helping me by your sweating out some sodium. So that's great. I don't have to pass so much sodium in urine. And so that's how the system works. And if you take sodium during exercise, as we showed, you just pass it during, ex- during the exercise bar. So what you were reflecting was, is Gatorade's influence on thinking of runners. Wow. That, firstly, dehydration yep. is not a medical condition. It is purely that you, your blood, blood volume has reduced slightly. That's what dehydration is. It has no effects at all. It is true that if you don't drink and you get thirsty, 
and you get seriously thirsty and you don't drink to replace it, you will get into trouble. But the only people who really get into trouble from dehydration are the people who lost in the desert for two or three days. They get kidney failure. Yeah, I've done that too. (laughs) But they're profoundly thirsty and they want to drink. Oh, yeah. If you're not thirsty, your body is saying it's fine. This level of dehydration. And I mean, we studied Haile Gebri Selassie with a group from Glasgow. When he set his world record, he lost five kilograms in the race. Oh, wow, wow. And amazing. So now just take Haile Gebri Selassie. He weighs 50 kilograms. And you reduce his weight to 45 kilograms for the last 10 kilometers of the race. It's going to have to help his performance. It's a, it absolutely will help him. But wow. the physiologist, because we have to be able to tell you what to do and you must do this and you must take your carbohydrates, they, they didn't listen. They didn't look at the whole total picture. So, I mean, let's take Haile Gebri Selassie, make him run. We put a five kilogram weight on him, his body, for the last 10 kilometers and see how fast he runs. Yeah, I can guarantee slower. you he'll go slower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh-huh. but physiologists don't think like that because they sometimes they, they just try to reduce everything. Oh, if you get dehydrated, it's going to affect performance. No, no, no. Performance is determined by a host of factors. And right. most importantly, as you said, it's your brain and, and your psyche and your desire. That's that's what you're really thirsty, drink then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually um did a crossing of the Libyan desert back in my youth when I was crazy. And um and it was illegal and it was across a military barred zone. We only had two liters of water a day in a forty degree temperatures sort yeah. of thing, and we yeah. had thirty five kilo backpacks. Uh there I was dehydrated. <laughs> there yeah, there exactly. I had trouble after seven yeah. days, you know, massive problems with the kidneys and uh, you know, was lucky to survive that one to be fair. But no, otherwise you know, it's not it's not as quite as um, uh, as uh, easy as you think. You know, with this hyponatremia versus dehydration, and it's a little bit complicated. Yeah. Professor Noakes, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for sticking to your guns and always speaking the <laughs> truth and developing and evolving and changing the things that you have to change as you go along in life. And goodness, that's what we should all be doing. Um, and for, for being brave and courageous and telling us what's actually in the science, because it's really, really important. It's been a fabulous pleasure. Thank you. It's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much, Lisa. I've enjoyed every second of it and I wish you success in the future. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.